Courage to Hope with Tony LaGreca is a show supporting the fight for sobriety against substance abuse and changing the stigma that comes along with it. Tony has been helping families, friends, and loved ones discover recovery services as well as coping skills for over six years following the death of his own son to opioids. Join Tony and his guests each week as they reveal the courage to hope. Here's your host, Tony LaGreca. Thank you, Ben. Tonight we have a very special guest. We have DA Timothy Cruz, District Attorney Cruz. Welcome. Thank you for taking some time out of your busy day and sitting with us. Thanks, Tony. I appreciate the opportunity and I appreciate all the hard work you guys are doing. Thank you very much. And I understand you've been the District Attorney since 2001. That's correct. November 2001, I became the district attorney, uh, and I've been elected five times since then. Well, wow. so what is it? Every a four-year term? Yeah, it's a four-year term. Um, and I was originally um, the DA before me was Mike Sullivan. Mike had been the DA for about six years, and had been appointed by President Bush to become the U.S. Attorney. So I was appointed to fill out Mike's uh, the last year of his term, uh, his, his last term as DA and uh, was re- have been reelected since then. Well, so I've heard some pretty amazing things that you've been working on as a district attorney. I'm, um, you know, you have this image of a district attorney from watching Perry Mason reruns, right. you know. You know, it's a lot different in your world than, than it was in Mr. Berger's world. So, and I'm, I say that because we have a very, we have a mostly a 50 plus audience, so I'm sure they remember. Uh, that type of district attorney, you know, who's just constantly losing cases to Perry Mason. But, uh, <laughs> I'll tell you, when I when I go out and I speak about, you know, what we do in the DA's office, I often will ask uh, people, do you, do you know what the district attorney does? And, you know, I, I kind of get that vague look sometimes from people. And I'll often say, you know, do you watch Law & Order? Do you watch CSI? And they're like, they're nodding their head and go, well, that's nothing like that. That's television. That's, you know, crime to conviction in 60 minutes with commercials. You know, the DA's job is so very, very different. And I think it's fair to say that since I've become DA and since I, went assist, I was an assistant DA in the 80s here in Plymouth County also, since that time, the world has certainly changed. We are certainly more on the front end of a lot of issues, the back end of a lot of issues, and at the same time, trying to make sure we can help the people that we can in the middle and also make sure we do our job, which is hold people accountable for their actions. It seems like you've really been working hard at making sure uh, potential criminals don't get back to jail um, by by straightening different things out. And I heard from your assistant at a meeting we were at that um, when you took over, there was a fairly large number of people incarcerated and that you brought that number way down. Can you evaluate, can you, you know, uh, tell us about those, just the numbers, and then I'm going to get into how how you did it. Well, I mean, and, and I, I, although I would love to take all the credit, I can't. Um, there's a lot of really good people who are working hard every day trying to make sure we can, A, keep crime down, and at the same time, drive our incarceration, our incarceration rate down. So Massachusetts right now is 50 out of 50 regarding incarceration rates based upon their populations. And I guess it's one instance where you're glad you're in last place, uh, that you know, we have less people. So when you look at the numbers that have occurred over the course of the last you know, decade, you know, in the Plymouth County House Correction, their numbers are down 79% of people who are doing time down the jail. 
And those are the house correction sentences. Those are the regular district court cases that you'll get uh, on a, a variety, different variety of cases that go on. The much more serious cases here for the Commonwealth of Massachusetts are Department of Correction cases. And those are the murders, the rapes, traffickers, things such as that. And we're also been able to drive those numbers down too by working together, making sure we can get in front of these issues what they are. And they've also go down, I think, approximately a four, almost from 11,000, almost 12,000 inmates doing time at DOC. Now it's like 6,100. So you're talking the numbers have been cut in half in the last decade. So how do you drive crime down and at the same time, drive the number down of people who are doing time while at the same time juggling a lot of the preventative issues that you have to do nowadays? dealing with kids on the front end, the kids who are at risk, kids who are drug endangered, kids who have adverse childhood experiences. How do you help the people that you can help? And I think we've been very successful by having a lot of really good people work together. Once again, on the front end, keeping people out of the criminal justice system, but at the same time, having reentry programs on the back end where I work with Sheriff McDonald through our task force and trying to train individuals that are coming back to our community because 99% of people that go to jail are coming back. Help them get jobs, help them have, deal with their issues, whether it be anger management or drug issues. How do you help them get back into the real world? And I think that, you know, working here in the city of Brockton with the, the sheriff and with Mayor Sullivan, we've been, we've been doing Corey friendly job fairs for a number of years now and getting people real jobs, real good paying jobs, IBEW, we're trying to get plumbers lined up, um, you know, trying to get some real uh, blue collar jobs which pay so much more money than somebody who maybe has, has an associate's degree or a bachelor's degree. So I think when you look at all of that, and at the same time in our court system, we have drug courts, mental health courts, veterans courts, trying to put the people in the right silos to help them. But at the same time, understand that, you know, if somebody does something that hurts somebody in a violent fashion, that they have to be dealt with. And we have to get guns and drugs off the street because of the insidious problem that's going on out there with drug dealers who are selling fentanyl, selling car fentanyl, selling these incredibly dangerous drugs that are killing people. Not, I'm not talking about people who are using, I'm talking about the people who are making money in the back of our families and loved ones. Those people have to be held accountable and that's what we've been trying to do. Yeah, could you elaborate on what your Plymouth County Drug Abuse Task Force, who's in it and how it how it started and how you got the whole idea. Yeah, I mean, well, once again, I mean, um, we usually get our best ideas by watching what's going around uh, in, in, our, in our Commonwealth or around the country. I'm lucky to be a member of the National DA's uh, Association. I work with prosecutors from across America. And what we notice here in our county, uh, because opiates and heroin is really nothing new. There's been problems with opiates for uh, back when I was an assistant DA here in Plymouth County back in 1984, 1985. It's not new, uh, but what we noticed, because the state police who work for the DA's office in every county, every county has a group of detectives that work for them. Uh, they deal with all the unattended deaths. Unattended deaths are people who pass away, not in a facility, not in a hospital or a nursing home. But say somebody just passed at home, and by if a police officer is called to show up at a home, they'll get in touch with the state police because by statute, the DA and the ME are in charge of all those cases just to make sure nothing suspicious happened. And 99 times out of 100, it is nothing suspicious. Somebody just passed away. But what we noticed in 2013 or so and 2014 is that our fatal opiate overdose has doubled in one year. It went from like 52 to 104. And that was really weird because all of a sudden, it just seemed to happen overnight that one year. And then we start to go up again the year after. So we're watching an, a, a very aggressive uptake of fatal opiate overdoses in our county. And then we're also seeing it across America. 
So what can we do? Because a lot of the, uh, our towns and our local towns put together groups because they were trying to deal with it because, I mean, virtually everybody knows somebody who's been affected by this, this insidious problem. And you'd see towns coming together, the Marshfield facts, Plymouth facts, and virtually you could go to a meeting every night of the week somewhere in our county. So myself and the sheriff thought, well, wouldn't it make more sense if we can put together a Plymouth County Drug Abuse Task Force, which can kind of be a clearinghouse for ideas and to bring people together that normally aren't in the same room together so that people don't have to go to a meeting Monday through Friday nights, that we can talk to these people and we can have these different groups. So we put together, uh, you know, really what we want to do is put like, uh, together a clearinghouse for coordinating opioid related issues, whether they be law enforcement, community coalitions, technical assistance, education, prevention, training, faith-based, data dissemination, dissemination, dealing with the hospitals and legislators. We had people all at our table sitting around and talking, what can we do as a community to get in front of this problem? How can we help the people that need to be helped? And at the same time, reduce the amount of drugs that are in our community and help the people that need the help the most, the people that we all love that are passing away. Yeah, I'm very familiar with that. The um... One of the things I wanted to ask you, and <clears throat> unintended overdoses or unintended deaths, um, I, I did a lot of work with um, the previous mayor of Brockton. We had a lot of grief groups, and a lot of the parents brought up the fact that, um, oh, they, the police officers came and they took my son or my daughter's cell phone. And, um, and they said, you know, we, we know who the dealer is. He's right there on the phone, you, you know. Um, whatever happens to these, um, how much investigating do you do in, on a cell phone that you, you take from a person who's overdosed? Well, I mean, I, I think that we certainly do an investigation because we want to find who the dealers are. And many times, even with evidence that you can extrapolate from the phones, many times a lot of it's hearsay. And it's not evidence that we're going to be able to use in court or to get us to the next level, say perhaps enough information to get uh, put together an affidavit to do a search warrant on a person's house or their their car, whatever it might be, whatever the uh, the issue may be. So when you get those phones, they really are uh, a very important tool in putting pieces together as to whether or not you can extrapolate that information and find out. Because uh, don't don't also forget that even though that we have the person who's using who, who may have passed away because of the opioid overdose. Many times they're calling burner phones. They're calling phones where these dealers have phones they use for a couple of days, maybe a week, then they toss them and they're gone and they go. And you're not, you're not able to find out who that person was. How do you make that step? That's a, one of the most challenging things in trying to get and reduce the amount of drugs on the street. When you're dealing with phones and when you're dealing with those investigations is, can we get to the next level? And can we then at that point prove a case beyond a reasonable doubt? We have been able to do that a number of times here in Plymouth County. We've been able to get manslaughter convictions against people who have distributed, intentionally distributed fentanyl, car fentanyl, given it to somebody and watched that person pass away. But unfortunately, they're very difficult cases to put together. It is part of the investigation to take the phones. Eventually, though, if, they do, if we do come to a dead end, uh, they will turn the phones back. Uh, to the family, because I know people want the phones. They may have pictures or other things such as that. that right. They're always looking for them back. Yeah. And you, and you certainly want all that stuff as best as you can. Uh, but we're going to try to find, do our job and do our due diligence to make sure that we can look at every nook and cranny that we can. Because the way I look at it is if we, if we are able to get one of these dealers who are selling this poison out on the streets, off the streets, I think that we're going to save lives that way and minimize the amount of drugs that are coming into our community 
Uh, and I think that is probably one avenue of what we can do. Now, who actually does that investigation? Is that the our office or is that the, the local police or is it the state police? Yeah, so I have uh, in, in our office, every district attorney's office has state police assigned to them uh, based upon your population. Like I know we have roughly 24 troopers who work here for me here in the DA's office and work throughout our county whenever we're dealing with half of them deal, deal with homicide issues, half of them deal with drug investigations. And then there's always a, 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 a bunch of different other cases that we'll be looking into to, to, to try to get to justice for people and try to help the victims in our community. So yeah, it will be in, in any death case, we will work, the local police will work with us. We will work with the state police who are here. The state police many times have more resources in some of the uh, smaller towns, including IT and how to get into those phones and making sure phones aren't turned off and uh, things like that, making sure that we can do our due diligence. And by working together, uh, we'll always try to get to the end of the road and making sure we can hold the people that are doing it, selling these drugs and hold them accountable. That's, that's good to know that it's, you know, all that intensification. Um, you said earlier, uh, the diversion program, you talk about different court systems. Explain um, how drug court works. Yeah, well, so somebody gets arrested for a drug-related offense, and then they're, they'll, get, they'll get an attorney. Normally, it'll be a court-appointed attorney, a bar advocate, and then that person will apply to go into the drug court, of which then it's, and it's a very intense thing. Uh, it takes a long time to graduate from drug court. I mean, people shouldn't think it's going to be an easy path because it's not, especially when if, if you're, it's not unusual for people to be in custody for a period of time starting out. Uh, I think when I've, when I've talked to some of the drug court judges, uh, I, I think sometimes they think it may be a good thing for somebody to start off in jail a little bit just to know how bad you don't want to be there. And, and you can see what can I do to make my life better? What can I do to make sure that uh, people that love me are going to be endured with all the issues and problems that go along with that. And probably most importantly, what can I do to, so that people that are looking up to me, my younger brothers and sisters, my cousins, my, uh, my family, how do we keep them up? How do they see what's happening to me? So drug court is going to be, it will go through, you'll go through probation officers. You will have trainings, you will have educational seminars. It is not unusual for it to take more than a year for people to successfully graduate. Unfortunately, sometimes people, um, they go back and start using again and they get take, taken out of drug court. Uh, that doesn't preclude you from getting back in it down the road again. And eventually, you know, it's a real proud day. I've been to a number of graduations over the years uh, when these men and women uh, have successfully gotten through that drug court and are successfully going in the right direction. Now we all know that if you have um, this addiction, that every day is a challenge and, and every day can, you can take, you can misstep. And that's why it's really so important, I think, to learn the basics making sure that you can go forward from that and in providing the resources that we can to try to make people productive citizens and safe citizens here back within the county. Yeah, I was in the Plymouth court and I think I saw a graduation one day and it was pretty, the family was there and everybody was very happy and it was like a real uplifting kind of event. Yeah. You know, and it I think really that is. really helps. That helps the, the patient. I like to call them patients because yeah. they, it's involved with drugs. Um, and I think they were on definitely going on to the, the, the right path, you know. And that's and, the key. Um, you know, getting, getting them back on the right path. I mean, you know, we work every day on things that quite honestly, 
back when I was an assistant DA back 30 years ago, we didn't know anything about this stuff. You know, we didn't, you'd get a, a, a case would occur, a crime would occur, you'd be given a police report, you'd be given a file. Um, you didn't know anything about people. You didn't know anything about the, their their backgrounds or their upbringings. You didn't know anything really about other than the case itself and what had happened. If it was a crime of violence, that there were victims involved, and if it was a drug case, that you'd have your drug cert. Which you know back then, you know, say if it was a heroin case, or back then if we send drug, uh, drugs to the drug lab, uh, state police crime lab, it would come back with obviously the amount because the amount's important for the purposes of charging, but also it would come back with the purity. And what I've noticed over the years is that back when we were doing purity back in the 80s, you know, 90s, the purity of heroin on the street was probably like 20 percent, maybe maybe 21, 22 percent, very light, very low because drug dealers like to make more money. So therefore, they're going to put what's known as cut or inositol or some vitamin B substitute to make more from less. Nowadays, if you see heroin out there in the streets, 90 percent pure, 95 percent pure. I mean, it's really powerful, deadly stuff. And I think what we end up seeing is many times if somebody relapses, which is not unusual, unfortunately, when somebody goes to get treatment and they may subsequently relapse, many times the first time that they use again after that could be fatal because their bodies can't really react to the strength of that drug that's out there. They're not used to that. So that's why I think that trying to get the treatment while we can uh, with a little, you know, a little hard love sometimes, uh, I think that may be something that helps the people understand that, you know, we've, we've got to we've got to help you. And we've got to help your family. And that's really, you know, from our task force, from you know, Plymouth County Outreach, which came from that, which is another great program, which is a very unusual program here in our county, um, something different. And I think that's why we've been able to be, you know, somewhat successful over the last few years in driving down our fatal opiate overdose numbers. And are you a favor when they're, <clears throat> when they're highly addicted? Let's say there have been on 40 milligrams of, of Oxycontin or Oxycodone in there really got a serious addiction problem. Um, where's, where do you, how do you feel about the suboxidin and the brupofamine approach? I mean, I, I, you know, there's arguments both ways. I mean, obviously it would ease the pain of a person coming off a significant amount of drugs that they're using. Uh, but then when I, sometimes when I talk to, I've been down to the jail before, I've talked to inmates uh, down there, and they, they, they've said to me, they think the best way to go is, is go cold turkey. And to stay off the suboxone is is the weakening amount that you're using in your system. Um, to, to me, I, I want to do it less painful for everybody, uh, you know. But I also want to stop this stuff, you know. So whatever the best practice is, is what I would go by. I would go along with regarding whether or not that's going to be for that individual, if that's what's going to be good for him or her, uh, because it happens to both. And let's not forget that you know the the, the, the Plymouth County has correction and uh, our DOC places are for men only. You know, the, the Framingham and South Bay is where women are going, at least for now. Uh, and those are other institutions that we have that uh, we have to deal with, too. So I think that, you know, hopefully I know some some sheriffs have those programs, you know, where they can help people wean off the drugs themselves while they're in custody. Others don't. Uh, and um, I think that, you know, I would rely on their medical judgment down there regarding each person, because in our county here in Plymouth County, uh, the biggest detox is the Plymouth County House of Correction. And I think that's, uh, I know in talking to parents and talking to the sheriff and a lot of deputy sheriffs down there, they've talked to a lot of people who have substance abuse disorders, uh, their families, and the, the parents, if, if nothing else, when their son or their daughter may be in custody because of the drug use and whatever they've done from that, sometimes they can actually get a, a good night's sleep because they know, where the, they know where the kid is. 
out the, when they're out in the street, you don't know what the hell's going on. You don't know if they're out there potentially going to get hurt again. They're going to do something. Uh, what are they going to do in order to satiate their their needs for that drug? Um, so I think that we have garnered a, a lot of positive things in the direction that we're going, but I think we have a long way to go. Every parent dreads that two o'clock in the morning phone call. Sure. From the local sheriff or police department because you know they never know as you said um what percentage we we talked to uh sheriff mcdermott from norfolk county right and and um he gave us a startling number i'd be curious to hear what you would say what's the percentage of people who get incarcerated are involved with drug-related crimes or addicted I think that, you know, nowadays, uh, the, the criminal justice system is unfortunately the depository of mental health issues and drug issues because people have nowhere else to go. We closed many mental health facilities 25, 30 years ago. And, and as a result of that, people with significant mental health issues, perhaps they've been diagnosed, perhaps they haven't been, perhaps they're on meds, perhaps they're not on meds, are out there creating havoc and problems uh, because of their mental health issues. And then they cross that line to the criminal realm. Uh, same thing with the drugs. We see people that are out there that uh, are using drugs more than ever. And that's a terrible, deadly combination of mental health issues and drug-related issues. And it, it can turn into something that's really, really bad. So I would definitely say from talking to our sheriff, I know in the past, down in Plymouth County's uh, Joe McDonald, I think he was saying that at a minimum, it would be 60, 60 65% the people that are there that, that are in custody that have these issues. So the question that I have then, and I think other people have is, well, if that's the case, isn't there some other alternative to the criminal justice system? Why aren't we working together as a society to help individuals who have mental health issues? And some people are, are danger to themselves or other people that, you know, until that they can get everything straight, until they can get their meds straight, until they can get diagnosed, you know, they need to be in a position where they're not going to do that, hurt, hurt themselves or hurt somebody else. Why can't we get more beds for that? Why can't we get more beds for individuals who are using drugs rather than putting them into the criminal justice system? You know, don't get me wrong. There are some people out there who do terrible things when they're under the influence of drugs. And if it was your son or your daughter, uh, something happened to them because and I don't want to hear the excuse. Oh, they were high on drugs. You know, you've killed my daughter. You've changed my life. You, and that's that the, the, the differential that you have to hang on to. You have to make that determination. You know, how do you try to get the world back the best way that you can when basically you, you have uh, you're pounding square pegs into round holes and you're trying to make sure that you can do the best you can, not just for one person, but for the society as a whole. And I think that's why it's incumbent upon district attorneys now to change their outlook and to work together. Uh, and I've been doing that with district attorneys across the country as well as here in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. And quite honestly, people are watching here what we're doing. Um, we've been leading the charge on drug endangered children. We've been leading the charge on handle with care. We've been leading the charge in Plymouth County outreach in which 26 communities and the city of Brockton and Bridgewater State University share information, data information regarding uh, non-fatal opiate overdoses to get information to people within 12 to 24 hours, whether it's the survivor of the non-fatal or their family, to get them resources, to get them help. Because what continues to be a problem is the stigma of using heroin abuse uh, and, and opiate abuse. 
people are embarrassed by it for whatever reason. And I don't think you should be any more embarrassed by that as if, as if you went to the doctor and they told you you had cancer. I mean, some of these things are genetic and some of these things are something that you have a very difficult time dealing with. So um, we have to get information to the people that love them the most that will try to help them. I think when you look at what's been going on here in our county, for the, since we've done PCO, Plymouth County Outreach, which came out of the task, the law enforcement subdivision of our task force, since, that, since that's happened, we've watched our fatal opiate numbers go down, except for the COVID year. And you watch that. So in 2018, we had here in Plymouth County 120 fatal opioid overdoses in those 27 communities. In 2019, the first year of COVID, it went up to 143. 20, 2020 went down to 133. Last year, it went down to 107. As we sit here right now in our county this year, which is we're in August now, so we're almost two thirds of the way through, we have 59. So we've seen those numbers go down. And what I attributed to is that Plymouth County outreach, like I said, because the, the conversations and the communications between all 27 police departments, so that if somebody overdoses here in Brockton, yet they're perhaps from Plymouth, within 12 to 24 hours, a recovery coach and a plainclothes officer will bring that information down there. I think we saw a spike during COVID because the recovery coach and the police officers couldn't go to houses anymore. They, that, they, they, because they couldn't even Zoom for a while. You couldn't get information to people. So you watch those numbers go up. The next year after, PCO started up again, going making face-to-face -face visits eventually, and now our numbers are going down. This year, I know from January to uh, through June, the only county in Massachusetts with numbers going down for fatal opioid overdoses is Plymouth County. And I attribute a lot of that to a lot of the front-end work that we're doing, a lot of the information they're doing with PCO and drop-in centers, which come together from that also, making sure we can get information and education out, making sure that we can train our police officers and our first responders to help uh, the, what they see when they show up at a scene. So we're training our police officers here now in our goal of trying to make all of our schools trauma sensitive, in our goal of trying to make sure that when a police officer shows up on a, at a non-fatal opiate overdose, they may not see any children directly in front of them, but look for things, look for toys, look for small shoes, look for things such as that, because there are kids there and kids are watching this stuff. And you can't tell me that it's not traumatic for a small child to see their mom, their dad, their brother, their sister, somebody that they love, overdose, because it is. And what happens when that child, the next day, where's that kid going to go? More likely than not, they're going to go to school. And when, you, when you're 6, 7, 10 years old, whatever the age may be, and you walk into a school after something like that's happened in your life, and nobody says anything to you about it, what does that make you think? That makes you think nobody cares. So why should you care? We have to provide training to, the, to our first responders, training to our school teachers, so that they can help these children, these high at-risk kids, these children with adverse childhood experiences, so we can get them the resources that they need. Because if we do that, we can try to keep them out of the cycles of drug use down the road. So that today's young child who's watching something terrible is not using themselves in five or 10 years from now. That to me is the goal is working, helping the people we can help now to the extent that we can, but also preventing kids from entering the criminal justice system as best as we can. And I think that we've been successful with doing that. And as a result of that, we've watched all of our crime numbers go down. Our, like I said before, our incarceration rates have gone down and our fatal opioid overdoses have gone down. I think not one person, not one agency can take credit for that. Everybody is working together. Doesn't matter, no pride of authorship. 
Let's work together. Let's get best practices. I've gone all over the country and spoken about what we're doing. I've gone all over the country and listened to what other people are doing. And what can we do to take their information, their best practices, and bring it here? And I think that's why we've been successful. But I don't, successful really isn't the right word because as long as there's people dying from an opiate overdose, you're not successful. You've got to get it once too many. How do you stop it all? And I think the way we stop it all is making sure we can help kids in the front, make sure the drug dealers who are killing people get held accountable, and that we help people getting back into the community, help them with getting, getting jobs and be good, stable people in our community. Oh, that's very well said. Um, my, one of my, my big deals is, is too many prescriptions. We find that um, there are still some doctors out there who, who just write they just think pain management is the thing because they got brainwashed back by in the 1990s by the Sackler family and Purdue Farmer and a few others. And they're still going in that route. And even nurses are. I mean, I know people that have recently had knee replacements and the nurse just insisted that she get on tramadol or oxycodone, you know, to reduce the pain instead of going with ibuprofen and ice and things like that. And right. Where, where does the DA come in and in, in in, under those, you know, where, you know, the stop, I say stop the spigot because that's when somebody gets a prescription, like from a football injury, like my son did. And um, then they would never, they didn't even know what an opioid was. And then they got introduced from a prescription. I, I think that's still um, part of the problem out there. I, I, I think, I think it's part of the problem, but I also think it's gotten better. And I know we do a sports sense um, in a lot of our schools at the beginning of the sports year. And if you are going to be playing a, a varsity or a JV sport, you have to come listen to a variety of people. Usually it's me. And many times it's uh, Dr. Dan Muse from uh, Brockton Hospital, who's the ER emergency doctor over there, who does an incredible job and does a lot of time that he donates back to the community. And he talks just about that, you know, about a lot of athletes, student athletes who may be getting hurt and that to, to stay away from that stuff. Don't take the two leaves and an ibuprofen, whatever it may be, because it's just as effective pain-wise. And making sure the kids understand what it is that they're getting, and that parents understand too. I mean, you could go to the dentist and get a root canal. And if you have the wrong dentist, that dentist could be giving you some form of oxys also. So you don't need that stuff, has been my experience. I think a lot of the doctors and dentists are, are getting better because a lot of them have been prosecuted for, for distributing way too many drugs. Because they were those guys, at least a few years back, they were in it to make money. They were making money through Purdue Pharma. They were making money through all those different drug companies. And it was on their best interest to move these, these pills as best they could. That was really the beginning of the problem. That was the beginning of the opioid craze 10 years ago, back when they were, when they were pushing this stuff. You know, I mean, Oxycontin, Oxycodone, in and of itself is a good pain medication for people with cancer and serious drugs like that. But it was being produced at that point and told to doctors initially that it was, uh, it was not addictive. And that just wasn't true. It was incredibly addictive. And now we sit here as a, as a society trying to deal with the aftermath of a company that was making money. So if there are doctors that are continuing to do that, and like I said, I think it's gotten better, but I'm sure there are some that are still, that are still maybe doing that. Uh, those people need to be held accountable. And if they're out there pushing pills to make money on the backs of our kids or on the backs of other people there, they need to be investigated and if, and if necessary, prosecuted. I think there's a good time to bring up my bill we have a bill at the house right now, it's called H4814, and it's the Right to Know Act. 
So that what it basically is, is if a child or anybody 18 and under is getting a prescription for root canal, as you said, or wisdom teeth removal, and the, getting prescribed an opioid, the doctor has to sit with the parent and explain that this is a highly addictive narcotic and addiction could occur. And, and the, the, the parent has to sign off on it and the doctor has to sign off on it that he's fully warned. And, and they also have to talk about alternative uh, medicines that could work just as well. And um, anything you can do to help us get that bill through, it's already gone through appropriations and, and we're now in the financial part of it, it's gone out of committee. And uh, this rep representative Fioli from uh, Marion uh, Wareham area, she's the one who's the official signer of the bill. Oh, good. I, I, I think that's great. Hopefully, hopefully that, that, that it can get through uh, the House and the, and, and the Senate and, uh, and eventually the governor uh, to make sure that it can pass and become law. Because I, I agree with more information is necessary, uh, especially when you are a parent and you may not know, know all the ins and outs of the medications that they're offering to your kids. I mean, I think most parents are a little more careful nowadays um, because of all the things that have been going on the last few years. Uh, but I think that an awareness is a good thing for juveniles to understand that. And um, I would hope that that would be something that there wouldn't be a lot of people who would be against that and that they would want that to happen. So, yeah, if there's anything that we can do, I'd certainly be able to get behind that. Yeah, we just need to get it out of appropriations and get it to a vote. Yep. That's pretty much where we stand. And I have in your district, you know, uh, Kathy Lenatra, yep. uh, Joshua Cutler, um, uh, the gentleman from... Uh, from Marshfield, they're all in favor of it, you know. So we just got to get it up, up on the panel and get it to a vote. Right, you know, I usually I usually bump into one of those people throughout the weeks. You know, we we all go to different things and we bump into each other. So I'll certainly uh, reach out to those uh, guys and uh, gals and see if there's something we can do to expedite that. Yeah, it's number H forty eight fourteen. Okay. <clears throat> uh, they did change the number when it came out of committee, so yeah. that's okay. Yeah. <laughs> And then we had that we we did have that bill passed in New Hampshire and we had it passed in New Jersey and the significant numbers of addiction for people under 20 dropped in those states because the most of the when I, I work at a place called the Hope Floats in Kingston. Yep. And as a bereavement facilitator, I found that 35% of the parents who were sitting in front of me, their child, got introduced to opioids from a dentist, which I I'm pretty and that seems to be the, the tough age. They get it at 16 or 17. That's when it's a, um, they, mentally, they seem to be more vulnerable if they. Yeah, and I, and I think, you know, I know that uh, as we've been dealing with these, with these issues for years, I remember talking to the woman from Learn to Cope when her son got addicted on, on drugs from an injury, a knee injury, you know. And you see, and back then, 10, 15 years ago, you went by what the doctors told you, and many of them may have actually believed all that stuff, that, that it wasn't addictive. And now look where we're at. Um, and, you know, trying to put the toothpaste back in the tube is never easy. Um, trying to make sure that we can get the word out of this stuff. And I think a lot of people may understand it, but you have to be very vigilant like yourself. I commend you for staying on top of that because uh, many times there's a lot of bills up there and you have to remain vigilant in order to try to help shepherd them through the process, which can be very challenging sometimes, notwithstanding how good may be. Yeah, it's been a year and a half, but we're coming down to the finish line. We're getting closer. So we well, just I mean, got to get it. I mean, I'll tell you, a, a couple of years back, we had a case I, I dealt with. Um, 
I was state rep about a, a young man who was, I think he was 20 or 21, and he was sent down to the addiction center down at Bridgewater allegedly for 90 days. And he was sent down there under Section 35 uh, to, to get help. The problem was that there's only usually around 100 beds down there. And so what ended up happening was that they ended up more people were coming in while that young man was there. Eventually, in in their eyes, he was an individual that was ready to go, but it was a lot it was a lot sooner than the the three months it was supposed to be. So he was released, and he was 20 years old, and he was an adult. But they never told his family. And when he was released, he went out, he used, and he died. And so his dad and his uncle, who I knew, we were able to work together with the legislature to make sure that when somebody is being held on a section 35 down there that there is a mandate point of contact that they will notify because that that dad and that family was of the was purely of the concern that you know if i had known that my son was being released i know how fragile he was i would have been there and i would have picked him up and i would have driven him right to a rehab center to get in there but i didn't know because the kid was 20 and he's an adult so sometimes because of the fact of all the drugs that they're on and stuff they're not thinking correctly and in that instance we ha i think have an obligation to try to do everything we can do to to break the cycle and to help the people that we can possibly help. And I think that law got passed um, a couple of years back, and I'm hopeful that maybe we can help with this too. I think Joshua Cutler was the one who passed he was. that. He was. I, we interviewed him a couple of weeks ago. Yep. <clears throat> it's a very familiar story. Yep. So we know, you know. Um, tell me what what is um, Veterans Court? We do a lot of, uh, we do the, veterans voice on our station after our show, actually, it's going to be coming on um, right after this show. And um, what is, where do veterans uh, fall in with the district attorney? How does this, how, do, how does that come about? Well, it's actually, we actually have, it's a joint court between uh, here down and Iron Echo, there was a southeastern mass that rotates around between Plymouth and Bristol County. It doesn't sit all the time. Uh, but it does deal with veterans, people who have um, whatever the issues may be that they have, whether they be mental health issues, whether they be drug issues, whether it be physical issues, if they violate the law, they can go there and they can get special help to the extent that they can. We also have the Valor Act here in Massachusetts, whereby an individual was charged with a crime. If he or she was a, an, uh, was in the service and was honorably discharged, that they can get that basically a free pass on, on the first uh, uh, nonviolent crime that occurred at that time. So I think that, you know, in trying to help the men and women who have been uh, hurt and many times it's not physically many times it's mental I mean, PTSD remains a big problem out there uh, and the men and women uh, you know I often tell the story my, my son was in the service he got out uh, uh, last year he'd been in for about 12 years and he was in over in Afghanistan and I took him uh, to a hockey game uh, in Columbus and they had a cannon that they shot off and when they shot the cannon off we weren't ready for it and he went under the seat and I said what's the matter he goes I'm okay he said because but but I, I didn't know that was coming so and he's out working, he's got a job, he's got a life and all that stuff. But, you know, if, if that's happening to just a young man that was over there for 10 months, what else, would they all see? Because most of the kids, much like a lot of our World War II and uh, other vets, they don't talk about what's, what occurred in these places. So what's working in, sense, in, in somebody's head right now? You know, I, I was yesterday at a luncheon for the Purple Heart uh, recipients here in the city of Brockton, and it was a great luncheon for those men, for those, men, for those guys. You know, and um, you look into their eyes and you see the pain in their face and you understand what they're going through. So a veterans court will be something that can hopefully take that into consideration to help the people who are facing challenges that we don't even know about, whether it be Agent Orange issues which come back from Vietnam or the burn issues that are going on now. 
you know, with, with I know that some of the, the men and women when they've been deployed anywhere, Af Africa, for instance, and they have those burn pits going on and just burning toxic chemicals, which is blowing, the smoke is blowing in on our men and women, and that's going to affect them. That's going to affect them physically. It's going to affect them mentally. And we have to understand that, that the men and the women who have done so much for our country that, have, that allow us to be in a position that we can have conversations and allow us, you know, to make sure that we can go forward with our lives, that we have, we owe them an obligation. We have an obligation to them to make sure that we can help them to the extent that we can. And also make sure that uh, we can go forward and try to keep the society as safe as we can. So I think it's a fair statement that, um, we're always juggling a lot of balls over here because you want to come out at the end. You want to come out to a just result, whatever that may be. And every case is different and every event that occurs is different and victims are different. Uh, and you try to get your arms around that and you try to get everybody on the same page many times. Uh, and uh, that's ne never really easy, especially when you're dealing with violent crime. Yeah, recently, um, my grandson joined the Marines. But before he went, I took him to Normandy. Wow. And I took him to London to the um, Winston Churchill bunker yep. to see what World War II was all about. And he was he's always been a big student of World War II. And and myself, I uh, thinking I'm doing him a favor and bringing him there and everything. And what I saw with my my relatives, my uncle had to go through to land at Utah Beach and to, <clears throat> to march from Utah Beach. And and then the different battles that it took place. You know, you think, uh, you know, people don't understand. It's a two-hour train ride at 200 miles an hour from Normandy to Paris, mm -hmm. you know. And when you're walking and having battles as you go, you know, with Germans that are hiding in the woods or hiding in bunkers and stuff. And um, it's the veterans go through so much that unless you're there, you could never comprehend it. Mm -hmm. And I, I think everybody should go to, to Normandy just just do a two-day tour and just see what all of our veterans and all of our people in the military had to do for us so we could live the way we live today, you know? No, I agree. I, I've been to Normandy myself, and I, I agree 100%. You, you see those cliffs, you see all the bunkers that are still there, and it, it's amazing uh, what, what happened back then. And uh, to, to think that, that that war was over in four years, you know, for the U.S., it was uh, it's really something, and that they were able to do what they did and that's why i've never forgotten that i never forget like I said, my, my my dad was in the navy my father-in-law was a marine over in korea and my son was over in afghanistan so i never forget and i think that we owe them something for that and uh whatever that may be we'll look at if something happens to a vet we'll certainly look at the case and see what we can do when i came back i thought we 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 underplayed general eisenhower to put together that whole organization yeah. for it's people, there's thousands of ships and hundreds, thousand men, and and how you coordinate that? You know, it's 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 hard enough to take 15 guys on a baseball tournament and make sure they're all fed. Now, how about 150,000? You know, yeah, no, I know, and, and, and plus, don't forget they had that terrible weather back then too, and trying to get it done. It was cold. So, yeah, the fog came in the night before they were going to attack. They had fog and they couldn't see and the. And the Germans flooded the marsh and it was, you know, neck deep with water and everything, you know. Um, <clears throat> before we run out of time, there was one other thing I wanted to ask you about is that um, your 18 victim witness advocates, people who um, I take it's work with the people who are victims of crime. Right. 
Can you explain how that works? And yeah, we we have you know it's funny because when I started, I was an assistant DA back in nineteen eighty four or five. Um, we didn't have victimless advocates, and I remember being at the old Brockton District Court on uh, on the North Elm Street over there, and you'd have a, a stack full of files every day, and you're trying to run down your police officers and your victims, and you, the DA the ADAs were doing. And that was a heck of a lot of work trying to get it done. So when the victim witness advocates became, they are, they are now uh, young men, young women, uh, who basically are the face of the DA's officer, if you are a victim or a witness, so that they will reach out to a victim or a witness and they will talk to them and tell them when the case is on, do they have any questions? Do they want to speak to the ADA before the case uh, and try to explain to them as best as they can. Are they out any money? Is there restitution issues? You know, can you fill out the appropriate forms? Understand, understanding that in any felony disposition that you as a victim have a right to be heard. So victims have lots of rights and that's great. I think we try to abide as best as we can with all that. Uh, but we do have a, a large number of uh, young uh, victimless advocates who work in our four district courts in Brockton, Plymouth, Wareham and Ingham, and also in Superior Court in Plymouth and Brockton. And there's a lot of cases, you know, here in Plymouth County, you know, pre-COVID, we were handling almost 18,000 criminal cases a year into 60 lawyers and 20 Vic Wits, uh, and plus a lot of administrative people. So that's a lot of volume coming in the front door every year. And at the same time, trying to get things as best you can to work correctly. Um, I mean, listen, the, the criminal justice system is premised on humans working together. So there's always going to be mistakes. There's always going to be issues. And what I tell people is, is that what I want my people to do here is you, you can never guarantee anybody a, re, a result. You just, you just can't. But what you can guarantee is effort. You can guarantee that I'm going to do the very best I can to get you the, 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 the disposition that we deserve, we as a community, we in Plymouth County deserve, to make sure that we can keep people safe and to make sure that you as a victim feel good. And if you need to get restraining orders, if you need to get more information and stay away orders or whatever it is, then we're, we're here to help. And that we will also make the appropriate request of judges to make sure that we can uh, try to make you whole before whatever happened to you happened to you. Uh, and that's not always easy, uh, but we do the best that we can with those cases. And I think we try to imply to refer to the judges that, you know, these people are here and they've been here uh, every time to make sure that the right thing happens. And hopefully that, that can occur. Well, that's pretty good. Um, so tell me about Timothy Cruz. How did he? Um, how did he become what he is today? You know, what was your? Did you originally going to be a lawyer, or how did you? Uh, how did how did you get into? Because I mean, obviously, you have to have a passion to do this. Because every morning you walk in, and maybe even you don't. The morning, if you have a violent crime in the, in the county, it it could be four o'clock in the morning, and I'm sure you're getting phone calls, right? Yeah, no, I've, I've basically been on call for the last 21 years. Uh, we we 20 yeah, years in November. Uh, it takes and, a certain type of individual who is willing to do that and a passion for the job. And I, I, I agree with that. I, th I think that, you know, you have to be committed to this position. Uh, it's not willy-nilly. It's not easy. Um, and you make decisions. And whenever you make decisions, there's always going to be people out there that don't agree with you. Um, and you try to make your decisions based upon whatever the facts may be, whatever the law may be, whatever the situation is, and try to make your best judgment. Now, I've been doing you know, criminal defense work, strike that criminal prosecutor or criminal defense work for the last 37 years. I grew up in West Bridgewater. I went to West Bridgewater High School, went to BC undergrad, went to Suffolk Law. 
was lucky to get an internship uh, with the DA's office back in 1983. Bill O'Malley was the DA, uh, and they gave me an opportunity to come in, and I actually was trying cases as a student intern. And I love doing it. I love trying cases. And eventually I became an assistant DA, and I did that for four or five years, and I've tried. I, I end up going out in private practice, and we lose a lot of people in the DA's office because of money because we can't afford to pay them what they can make out in the real world. So usually when, just when people are getting good, you know, three or four or five years, those people will leave because they want to go make some money. They want to get married. They want to buy a house. They want to buy whatever it is, pay their bills. And I did that for 12 years. And I, I just like when I was a prosecutor, I prosecuted every case from trespass to homicide. So I did a lot of personal injury work and probate work, but I also did a lot of criminal defense work. And I, and I defended every case from trespass to homicide. So I've been on both sides. I've tried over 200 jury trials myself. I've handled thousands of cases, frontline stuff, dealing with the victims, dealing with the witnesses. Every day when I'm in Brockton, I will walk from district court to superior court. And every day I walk into somebody that I know, somebody that either I prosecuted them, many times people that I defended or their families, um, because many times you develop relationships with those people. And they look up to you. They're looking for your help, looking for your guidance. And it doesn't really matter you know, if, if we're different than each other. I am their representative. I am the person in court. And now I've been the district attorney for 21 years, almost 21 years. And now I'm the chief law enforcement official in Plymouth County in charge of uh, 150 people here, including the state police, of making decisions every day that affect people's lives. And I don't take that lightly. I, I understand that everything that I do or say can have a big effect on somebody's livelihood, on their liberty. Uh, and I, my role, quite simply, is to make sure that public safety is at the priority here in Plymouth County, that we're keeping victims safe. Because we live in a very challenging world right now, as we all know. And unfortunately, yeah. you know, right now, many times people who are criminal defendants are treated like they're victims. And the real victims in the cases, many times they're invisible. My job is to make sure that they're not invisible. My job is to make sure that children or seniors or somebody that's hurt, somebody that doesn't have a voice, they do have a voice. We're their voice. That's our job. We're the prosecutors standing up for what's right. And, you know, I often hear now about groups that are out there talking about, you know, the programs. Well, make no mistake about it. Diversion cases started by prosecutors. Children advocacy centers have been started by prosecutors. Specialty courts have been started by prosecutors. We have been leading the way in order to try to minimize the amount of work that we have and trying to help the people that we can and get them outside the criminal justice system. Because that's where you can help people. So every day, you know, that we can try to help somebody, keep them out of the system, that we can do our job and hold people accountable, and make people safe, and we can help people coming back into the community. I think that is what my job is. That's very well said. You know, um, do you ever get discouraged? Um, I, I think, you know, sometimes you go, I've been to so many terrible scenes and situations and you see a lot of terrible things in this job. Um, but I realize that people are looking at me, they're looking at my office to, for hope, for optimism. Is there any way out of this? And I believe that there is. I believe that step one is to make sure that we can do our job and we can help the people that need that help and we can show them that, you know, this is a terrible situation, but there is life after it. Uh, we're here to help. We're here to help you get the resources and mental health issues that you need. Uh, and, and although I think it can be discouraging sometimes, I am so happy and so optimistic 
but the direction that we're going here. As I watch our violent crime numbers go down, while the rest of the countries are all exploding. And what that shows me is that what we're doing here is working and it's keeping people safe. And I'm not looking, uh, usually when I go somewhere, people say, oh yeah, you're the guy I see you on TV when there's something terrible. And I, I understand that. I mean, most people, that's, that's how you recognize me. I'm hopeful someday they're gonna be able to say, hey, I remember you, you're the guy that helped us with drug court. Or you're the guy, one of the guys that helped us with Plymouth County Drug Abuse Task Force. That's what I want. I, I want to put. I want to be in a position where I can put myself and my fellow prosecutors out of business by being so front end heavy that we can make sure that we can help the majority of the people. That's a great attitude. Very commendable. I'm gonna say I'm. I recognize you. You're the guy who marches in the Plymouth Parade and the Buckley <laughs> Parade <laughs> every year. <laughs> yeah. Um, the other question I have is, why do they bother to put? Why do they make it political? Like you're a Republican, somebody else a Democrat. Why, why do they make this job political? It seems to me it's the best man should be the guy in the job and not put it, you know, as a Republican, a Democrat. It's, you know, leave that for the governor and other things, but not your job because you, you are who you are, you know? Yeah, I mean, I, I agree. I mean, I think that, you know, the, the good thing is at least uh, for probably in the last couple of years, all the district attorneys, we may have different political backgrounds, different beliefs, but we're all very respectful of each other and uh, understand that we all have a job to do. Um, I think that's more of a historical thing than anything else. Uh, I, uh, you know, I, I, I tell the story that I went to a, an event a couple of years ago with my friend, Michael Keefe, Mike's the DA down the Cape. We were going to an event, a political event in Boston. He asked me to go with him for Chris Christie. This is back in 2015, 2016. So we went to this event. And um, we were talking to him. I said, Governor, it's great to see you tonight. I go, I want you to know that the entire Republican delegation of the Mass DAs is coming here tonight to get our picture taken with you. And he looked at me and goes, that's great. Let me know when they get here. I said, we're here. It's me and him. Uh, and and <laughs> there's, there's only two Republican DAs. Uh, and now um, uh, my friend Mike is retiring after a well-deserved career. And that makes me the last Republican DA in Massachusetts. And I'm hopeful that uh, we're able to make sure that we have differing opinions, because I think differing opinions make a difference. Uh, and you can have a respectful conversation with anybody regarding his, I don't agree with you, but you can say what you want, you can believe what you want, but here's what I believe. And I think we need to have that. If you don't have that sort of dialogue, I think you lose something. And so even though that I agree with you that first of all, I think this position could very well be appointed by a governor. It is in 12 states, uh, 38 states in, in the US, they, they elect their DAs, 12 states, they, the governors appoint them. Uh, so, I mean, I think that every every uh, way you go, it has its pros and cons. Uh, but um, here in Massachusetts, I am certainly the uh, the vegetarian at the cattle ranchers convention. Uh, <laughs> but that doesn't mean that I don't think that we've been able to be successful. And I think that um, I remain optimistic. And I think that we're going to do great things as we go down this road. Well, I was going to say... Um... It's going to be pretty hard for anybody to come in and say that they can do a better job than you from what I've seen from all the different people. And I've been working across the country with Fed Up and other organizations. And you, you have one of the top, your top shelf with everything that you do. And you can look at the numbers and, you know, that's one of the things that I do a lot of sports. You've got to keep score. And your score is definitely going in the right direction. And your assistant DA, the one that I met, um, that introduced me to you is yeah. um, he's top shelf. You know, he seems like he knows exactly, he knows about everything, what's no, going on. And 
you know, and I was very happy to talk to him. And, and you got a uh, secretary, Beth. I assume she's a secretary or a your Beth assistant. Is my, Beth is my media person. Kendra's, Kendra's my executive assistant. Uh, well, she's you know, top shelf. She's top shelf, great. too. You know what? They, 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 they all make me look good, Tony. That's, that's, that's the that's way. What, <laughs> that's what counts. <laughs> I, I, I joke around. I go, I'm just a pretty face, but you know, with a face for radio. So, uh, you know, yeah. Okay. So, um, one last thing: Is there anything that I didn't ask you that you would like me to like the people out there who are listening to know? Well, I just think uh, all I, I will say. I, I say thank you very much for allowing us to come, allowing me to come on and tell a little bit of what's going on here. I would also just say to people that you should really know what it is that your district attorney does. And I would recommend them to go to PlymouthDA.com. We have so many preventative programs in our county that it's, it's way more than I can talk to you in an hour about. We have so many other issues that we deal with and that we work hard with all the different agencies here. Since I've been DA, we've brought in, we've brought in more than $25 million in grants that we bring in and distribute throughout the county for whatever the reason may be, whether it be gun violence, whether it be drug issues, whether it be uh, all the different things that we do. That money, belong, in my eyes, belongs to the county. And that, and therefore we, in my role as the administrator of it, is to make sure how do we get the biggest bang for our buck? We're in the middle of a, a $1.5 million uh, human trafficking grant. As we continue to grow and expand and make a difference in the ongoing crimes that are coming here and get in front of them, that's what's going to make the difference. I, I think that, you know, we're, we're able to, to do, uh, successfully do things because I think we're always a step ahead. Uh, and uh, I think that's what makes a difference. And also surrounding yourself with, with great people who are committed to the job of keeping people safe and doing the best that we can. I'm just proud to say that I work with a great group of people and I really appreciate the opportunity coming on your show today. Well, thank you. And I, I hope some of the money that the state is going to get and the towns are going to get from the lawsuits with Purdue and Johnson and Johnson and others. I hope you get some of that money funneled in your direction. Um, I hope so too. Yeah. So anything I can do or anything we can help is uh, I do work a lot with um, uh, Maura Healy, uh, the current attorney general, and she wants, she's adamant about making sure people like yourself get that kind of money so we can put it back in to do the work, especially with the, with the children of the victim that are, uh, <clears throat> that are, you know, victims of situations they have no control over. And I think that's really one of the biggest highlights. Well, thank you very much for your time and your and be able to speak to us. And uh, this is um, Tony LaGreca with The Courage to Hope. And we've been talking to District Attorney Timothy Cruz of Plymouth County. And I know you might be in other counties listening right now. And um, these are different things that your county could do. You know, if you follow the lead with Timothy Cruz. So again, it's WMEXBoston.com. and listen live at any time and it'll also appear as a podcast. I thank you very much. <laughs>